page and leave it likes with a plot that's less defined. And though I won't get back a dear stolen time, I could go to bed at night with a better storyline. You're listening to Helsetera in the Catskills on WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains. I'm Diana Mason, the host of this program. And my colleague, my dear friend and colleague, Helsetera correspondent and public health nurse Barbara Glickstein, said to me, you know, there's a couple topics I'd like to really talk to your listeners about. And so she couldn't come on live, so she recorded uh, her thoughts on two really interesting issues. And so I'm going to share that recording now with you. Barbara Glickstein on Helsetera in the Catskills. This is Barbara Glickstein with Helsetera. Today on Helsetera, I'm reporting on two issues that when I first read about them, I realized I knew very little, and then I decided to read some more. Here, I'm reporting on them so that you listeners can also learn more about them. The first one I found so interesting is called eco-anxiety or climate anxiety, actually something that Diana Mason and I talk about when we talk about our concerns after floods and fires and excessive rain and are concerned about the environment and the planet. And the American Psychological Association is defining eco-anxiety or climate anxiety as a chronic fear of environmental doom. So I don't think that's my issue, but it is something I think about. This fear, it can stem from direct experience of extreme weather events and environmental change. If you've lived through a flood or a forest fire, current hurricane or drought in parts of the world, or also the exposure to daily news about the global climate emergency we are living. It's not recognizable as a diagnostic mental illness, but many experts are characterizing it through a variety of symptoms, and I'll name just a couple of them, because they can also be about something else. One is an obsessive thinking about the climate. The other is a fatalistic thinking, sort of saying, since it's too late to save the planet, why bother trying? A sense of existential dread and guilt about What's my own carbon footprint contributing to climate emergency? For our young people, there's anger and frustration toward the older generations or the government officials who still haven't done enough to curtail climate change. So you can feel sad or depressed, a sense of trouble sleeping and concentrating. Again, it is not, it's not as though some of those symptoms don't relate to other mental health issues of anxiety. But it is interesting that we're now seeing it as it relates to climate emergency. So who is most at risk? Youth are most most at risk. They are expected to suffer more of the consequences of climate emergency. So they tend to be very fearful of their future as a result. 
our indigenous peoples, as nature plays such an important role in their culture and everyday life, many people in the indigenous communities have felt this for years already, and it is increasing. We know that marginalized communities with the fewest resources to deal with the crisis are another group most at risk. And people who work closely with the land, farmers, fishers, hunters, bird watchers, climate researchers also are experiencing some of this anxiety. And people who live in high-risk areas that are facing these extreme climate emergency changes, some northern communities and coastlines for sure. And finally, the first responders, this is another group that they feel is most at risk, who have been going in to fight these fires, to deal with the floods, emergency workers, healthcare workers, all of them have firsthand experience with the consequences of the climate crisis. So I don't want to leave you with what you can't do about this. I want to tell you what you might be able to do to help cope if you're feeling anything about the sense of doom of the climate crisis. Um, there's no cure necessarily for eco-anxiety, but there are some strategies that can help you. For example, get, get the facts. Don't oversaturate with the news. Well, it's really important to be informed, and here on Health Center in the Catskills, both Diana Mason and myself have been reporting on climate issues. Stay away from lots of it and lots of negative headlines that sometimes are written to be provocative. Acknowledge your emotions. Tell your friends and family, I'm really feeling very anxious about what's going on in the world. Talk to others. They're feeling that too. These are emotional responses that are quite valid. Um, it's natural to feel some of these feelings. It's also okay to be frustrated about the lack of change that's going on. Think about it as the upcoming elections are coming. What are the candidates talking about and what is their position on addressing climate emergency? Again, we can only focus on what we can control. So connect with others, share your concerns, Seek some help if you do need it. Maybe that will help you as well. And I'm going to talk about how we can support each other through the airways here on Health Center in the Catskills and in our communities. Ask people how they're feeling about that. And some, in some families and in some friend circles, people don't want to talk about this. But you do. And there might be another friend who would really like to talk about it as well. Break down that stigma, start the conversation, share your concerns, and encourage others to do the same. Children are aware of what's going on also. They hear us talking about it, they hear the radio on at home, perhaps parents or grandparents and aunts and uncles talking about it. Be prepared to answer them about climate change and help them understand what it means. And then of course you can become an environmental activist. You can develop an action plan with your friends. You don't have to do this just alone. Maybe talk about steps you can do to feel better by being more engaged. Um, have a sense of hope and control when you can. And when you see or hear an encouraging story about the change of the water quality in the Hudson River, seeing more fish return to that river, talk about it because those initiatives mean things are working. Having a sense of hope is important in our lives. And if you think that you have friends who really need to be more supported, reach out to them and maybe tell them they should talk to somebody even in the short term. These are dark times, that's for certain. But how will we live in them and make change? 
Are we going to give up and say, what's the use? Or are we going to say, hey, maybe there's something I can do to make some change. I hope you choose the latter. The second topic also struck me when I read about it at first, and I've been thinking a lot about the change from working from home back to the office and know that it's still very much in transition. People in my circle of friends, younger people and my children's friends have all renegotiated how many days they have to be in the office. For some people, that option is not open. Some of them have no choice but to return to where they work since the pandemic because of either they're in the service industry or their positions are of a lower level and they have to be back in the office, but maybe the executives aren't. In Manhattan, where I live, if a visit to Midtown still even this past week shows that not everybody's back in these huge towers. As a matter of fact, our mayor is talking about how to retrofit them to become housing, something we sorely need in our city. And just recently in a news uh, media outlet called 19th News, I read an article on sexual harassment decreases with remote work. And I thought to myself, boy, I hadn't even thought about that as an outcome of the pandemic and returning back to the office not really being something some people don't want to do because of a very hostile and unsafe work environment. So workplace harassment of any kind, just to broaden the definition and not just think about it in terms of groping or physical touching, it occurs when an employee uses protected characteristics like race or gender, their sexual orientation, seniority or social status, and they hold power over a colleague or a staff member. The result is a so-called hostile work environment, as I mentioned, and that workplace that feels unsafe can feel very threatening to someone's identity or even inhibit employees from doing their work. So in the three years since the pandemic, the American workplace has shifted uh, we know that more people were all doing virtual work, or mostly everyone. Um, but what some recent studies have shown is that it's also reduced instances of sexual har harassment. However, it is existing in different forms. So the channels through which remote work occurs on text, by phone and video, Zoom, um, and other kinds of media platforms, they're often unmonitored and they're unrecorded or they occur outside employer-sponsored platforms. I had learned from my nurse colleagues who taught nursing students remotely early in the pandemic that you don't ever ask someone why they haven't turned on their video camera. There are so many reasons, including but not limited to avoiding perhaps a same-sex partner at home and they're not out in their work, in their school environment or work environment. Uh, parents or multi-generations who live in one family and they may speak another language. Um, religious decorations on the walls of the home and also the poor internet signal or just a sense of anxiety of being on camera. So establishing ground rules for online work and education must be sensitive to these issues and more. And part of this plays into the concerns about harassment, some of those reasons and more. Um, Chabeli Carazana is the economy reporter at 19th News, and it was the article that she wrote that I read 
that reported on a survey that 19 News just recently completed in August that in-person employees are more than twice as likely to experience sexual harassment at work compared to remote employees. Um, in that article, Daphne Delbo, an attorney who works on women's rights issues, quoted as saying that many sexual harassment cases that she handles, again, are about the power dynamic at workplaces, where typically men in higher positions are levering those positions to abuse women. But then she goes on to say, it's really hard to assert your power when you're all in a remote office setting. However, there's a reduction in cases, in hospital cases and settings also, where social distancing rules were put in place. And I found that interesting as knowing so many nurses um, who work in environments that are hostile. Um, and she's quoted as saying that if we have men stay away from women, it actually creates more safety for them. Well, those six-foot rules are gone, and now we have uh, concerns again about policies and practices in the workplace for it not to be a hostile place. The preference for remote work in this survey showed that it was especially important for women of color, LGBTQ+, or women with disabilities. There are still issues of harassment in this virtual work workplace, and it doesn't involve groping or touching but experience of comments, jokes, text messages that are inappropriate, sexual tones in conversation, and gender bias that are taking place remotely. And many of these software programs we use don't have a reporting mechanism like you would at work. So companies have begun to write policies reflecting online aggressions in order to protect their employees. Another article by Leah Fessler, New York Times reporter, who writes a column called In Her Words, she made this suggestions that individuals who are working remotely should do everything they can to protect themselves. Take notes when something happens, the behavior that you want to document. It'll build credibility and a narrative over time. And you also should remember your colleagues if your multiple people are on an online meeting. They can be turned into your bystanders in an environment with low trust safety, processes, or procedures. You can reach out to them to support you when these microaggressions happen and then report them to your human resources department. So both of these issues were two issues that were new to me, things that I didn't know about and why I brought them to you today on this segment of Healthcetera. This is Barbara Glickstein reporting for Healthcetera. Yeah, really, um, really good good thoughts there uh, by my colleague, Barbara Glickstein. I'm glad that she shared those thoughts with us. Um, two really important topics, and as she noted, she and I have ongoing conversations about some of these issues, including the sort of mental anxiety and depression around uh, some of the changes in our world, the eco, ecological system of our world, the, uh, climate change and more. So, um, it is important for us to take care of ourselves and to also think about what can we do in some small way, uh, or large way to, uh, make a difference and feel like we are not saying it's all okay. We can do something about it, even if it's small. While you're listening to Health Center in the Catskills, I'm Diana Mason.